Mr. V Silver, how are we doing? Welcome to the Average to Elite podcast. Hey, mate, I'm, yeah, really good. Yourself? I'm very good, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest speaker today. I'm really looking forward to the discussion we're going to have all about performance and physical preparation for combat sport athletes, so essentially how we can get them from average to elite. So before we get into all of that, uh, like I clearly know who you are, but for the, my audience who may not, can you just give a brief background into yourself, please? What you do, where you're based, who you work with? Yes, yeah, so Reece Silver, um, my business is Elite Step. So that's a strength conditioning, well, performance-based for combat athletes specializing in that area. But working with sort of athletes, general population um, for many years pretty much but went down solely the combat athlete route just because that was my background and that's what I really enjoy so over the last when was it now that I moved back to Leeds 2018 I believe it was time's flying by now like two years now I've been doing it solely combat athlete so yeah moved to Leeds um done general population work of out of pure gym um but over the last, as I say, two years, year and a half, really solidly, just purely gone down the fighters route, MMA, boxers, kickboxers, done bare knuckle boxing, I've done Muay Thai, um, done one with Nicola, who you do a little bit of work with. She done, I don't know how to pronounce it, I think it's called Lefty, Lefty, which is basically like bare knuckle boxing, but with kicks as well. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, if anyone's not seen that, definitely YouTube it and have a look at that because it's one of those sports as well. I was watching it and I was like, I have no idea how you score in this. I, I think Nicola's won, but I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. So yeah, in my background of anyone getting ready to, to fight pretty much, I'm in charge of getting them as fit and strong as possible for, for that uh, night. Awesome. Very cool. So would you say you predominantly work sort of face to face or is it more kind of on an online setting at the moment? Yeah. So the online stuff, something I've started to build up now because obviously just given the current climate, one to one coaching was taken away from us over the lockdown. So it wasn't something I've done too much of, but it's something I'm doing a little bit more of now, um, whether that's people that have coached one to one who just can't get back to Leeds for work or um, but predominantly got about 10 online clients tap it at 10 because I still like to give them that same level of service and go into um, a bit more depth um, as well as I can so I cap that at, at 10 people and, and keep it there Awesome. Very cool. So in terms of the type of combat sport athlete you work with, is it say, say amateur and then like where do they kind of uh, fall and that spectrum? Yeah. So everyone pretty much. I've had guys that from amateur level who have had their first amateur fight while being trained with me um, up to sort of seasoned professionals who have been pros for five, five years or so now. Um, so yeah, whole range of people, whole range of personalities and different levels and stuff like that. But I've also actually done a few when I was first, not so much now, but when I was first starting out where I was doing like people even training for like a white qualifier and stuff like that, who wanted to take it a step further and do their strength conditioning, even though it's just a charity event. Um, so they'd sign up with me for like eight weeks and have like a, a crash course in S&C alongside their crash course in uh, boxing as well. 
No, superb. Yeah, that's great because I really just want to get someone on the podcast today. Really just been day and day and just done everything from every kind of uh, population, really. So very, very cool. So let's dive into today's podcast. Um, So in terms of the whole performance side of things, Mm. so I like to think of starting really broad and then narrowing in. So in terms of combat sport athletes, what would you say like the key physical characteristics they need to have in order to be elite? And then does this differ between different types of combat sport athletes? Yeah, so good question, that one. So I think initially, like, well, you hear it in regardless of combat sports or any other sports, you, you always hear the same when people say speed kills. And I think that's, that's so true. Speed is one of those attributes where, Obviously, it's dictated a bit by genetics and, and stuff like that. Like, we're capped at how fast we, our potential is. So if you get an athlete that comes in and they're just naturally genetically fast, um, it, it's something that excites me because I'm like, right, we can work with this because they've got that genetic makeup there where they're, where they're fast athletes. And in terms of their sports, the specificity of that, they can be taught those technical skills. So... Speed kills, absolutely. And then what I would say as well, again, not necessarily just in, uh, in terms of combat athletes, but sports in general, for me, one of the biggest qualities is power endurance. So if you think of the, the first person that popped into my head to most was Yaya Torre. He's just as powerful in the sort of last 10 minutes of a game as he would be in the first 10 minutes. Um, you look at sort of like the elite level boxers as well. They're hitting as hard as can in in round 12 as they were in round one um so a lot of athletes are powerful but less so are able to maintain that power over the whole duration of their competition so i would say for me yeah those are the two real big ones being fast having speed and having those power endurance qualities that can take you through the as i say the whole duration of your competition no that's awesome I think one of the key things today was uh, being able to maintain performance and work capacity throughout. Um, mm. you know, I think it's very much kind of two ways of this is yes, the performance, like you have to be fit enough. And always, I always say from like my um, area of nutrition, performance nutrition is if you can feel, if you know you're fit enough and you're not able to maintain your work capacity throughout, then it is your nutrition. Something's wrong in terms of your eating habits, your strategies that's specific to that event. Um, so I know that that's really cool. Like ultimately, like you need, if you're a professional athlete, you're elite athlete, level athlete, you need to be able to maintain your work capacity. There's no point being good for five minutes. And then after you're hitting rock bottom, like a yeah. few minutes later, there's absolutely, absolutely no point at all. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think you mentioned as well, sort of would there be any, any difference in terms of combat sport to combat sport? I think on the base of it, you need those sort of like speed and power endurance, as I said, no, no matter what, combat sport you're playing they're going to be key but if you look at stuff like um let's say wrestling for example as a combat sport that's really really highly lactate so a wrestler for example is going to need that lactate energy system developed maybe a little bit more so than other combat sports you look at something like the ufc and the different sort of forms of of combat sports disciplines that are within that you know, they might need, for example, 
more mobility through the hips because they're going to be kicking a lot more. Um, they're going to need to be stronger in those isometrics and have a bit more strength endurance if they get taken down or on, on their back. So the speed and the power endurance, yeah, great across the board. But as you go through sport to sport, there's going to be slight differences and slight, I guess, variations in terms of the demands of the sport and where we need to be stronger than, than other regions. No, awesome. So you can almost think of it as like the kind of like the hierarchy pyramid system that you see all the time. Like sort Absolutely. of like speed kills and sort of power endurance being right at the bottom for literally everything. And then as you go up through the layers, up through the tiers, that's when specificity really is really, really important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a great point because all of those things I've mentioned, they're all underpinned again, going back to the pyramid, the base of it by a solid aerobic base and having that foundation of strength endurance and aerobic energy system development that enables you to layer all those qualities on top. Um, I think when people look at combat sports in general, they see it as like, you know, an explosive sport. It's all about punching hard, being fast and powerful. But actually when we break down into it a little bit more, that's all underpinned by having that solid aerobic base. And I think a lot of fighters, maybe their undoing is, and from what I've seen personally, is that having the aerobic system not quite as developed as it could be is is leaving a little bit in the tank in terms of the performance potential that they could have. 100%. Do you feel like um, not having that develop affects the sort of mental performance as well in terms of the accuracy towards the latter rounds? And that could, could that be developed by improving physical um, fitness? Yeah, I think so. I think I actually had a conversation with someone recently about this where... And they, they said to me, because they knew that they needed to have that aerobic base built. And they were basically saying they just want to have the confidence to empty the tank in the early rounds if they need to. I think a, a mental side of, of combat sports, and I know from fighting myself, in the early rounds, you almost hold something back because you don't want to get to the point when you gas out. Like no one wants to be gassing out when someone's trying to take their head off. It's not a nice place to be. So as you say, on the mental side of it, having that, that confidence that, you know what, I've got my conditioning up to a level now where I can go all out and be confident that I've got that aerobic base that's going to allow me to recover in that one minute rest in between. Um, as I say, yeah, that, that plays a massive, massive role for sure. Okay. Awesome. That's brilliant. So in terms of like the development of these like favorable like characteristics, mm. so if you look into like speed at first, like if someone, if I came to and I'm just so, so slow. Yeah. How can you help me to develop my speed? Like what are the key yeah. things to perhaps look at there? So this is going to sound like completely obvious, but just sprinting. Maximally sprinting is the best thing for sprinting, <laughs> getting fast. It's, it's silly. It's like um, when people kind of ask me, like, what's the best conditioning for, for fighting? And it's just sparring. You're not going to get, any more specific to that so just playing your sport um is always the best conditioning so if you're looking to improve your ability of sprinting you need to just expose yourself to sprinting at, at um at high levels of course then there's things around that we can supplement that with so you might then look at doing stuff like changing the the incline of the sprints you might do hill sprints or vice versa you might actually sprint downhill in order to get almost like an overspeed effect where you're working at in theory over a hundred percent. Um, and then, you know, uh, apart from that, there's just making sure that technique of course, in terms of sprint mechanics are 
are on point um, and I'm not a sprint mechanic expert or anything like that, but we know there's sort of more better positions to be in. That's going to be more advantageous than, than other certain positions. Um, and then you'd look at more of like your plyometric training, just developing your strength. The stronger you are, the more force you can put through the ground in order to uh, be faster. Um, and then just tying that all together. But as I said, if you want to sprint and you want to get better at sprinting, just just go and sprint. How would you uh, develop sort of upper body speed as well then? Yeah, so very similar, to be honest, very similar. When we look at like our, our jumps and our plyometric training and stuff like that, we want that reactiveness as well. So, for example, to give people an example of what I would do is, so they can visualize, say, doing jumps with, um, uh, holding dumbbells or something like that to really overload that downward movement, the eccentric movement. And we can do similar things with our upper body by having like a light band around our chest, holding that and doing like med ball throws, where again, we're overloading the eccentric and almost having like that catapult effect. Um, the quicker we can go between an eccentric and a concentric contraction, so the downward to upwards phase or the pulling your arm back and punching phase, the quicker that is, the the quicker that our hand speed is going to be. Um, so you can do sort of like plyo press-ups. You can do, as I said, different med ball variations. And as I said, again, going back to specificity, you want to get faster hand speed, just move load quickly. So you can do landmine punches, landmine throws with weights that aren't heavy enough to slow you down. You know, if you're doing these movements and it feels slow, then it probably is slow. So just make sure you go more towards the lighter end um, rather than sort of going towards the heavier end. It's a lot better to be too light and be faster than it is to go a little bit too heavy and be slightly slower. Yeah, just grind them out. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, no, that, that's awesome. That's really cool. So in terms of like the power and endurance side of things, so just being able to maintain work capacity throughout, what are the key things you kind of look at developing there? Like, obviously, you see, like, um, sort of combat sport athletes or just run, 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 and run. Is that the right way to go about doing it? Is there, can you be more specific in terms of how you approach the running side of things? Is there anything in addition like you, that you'd like to do with them? Um, yeah, so, yeah, a couple of things. So, as we've already sort of mentioned, it's all underpinned by having that solid aerobic base. So, doing your long, steady runs um, is really, really important. The issue that we have with our guys, though, is that their long, slow runs become long, fast runs. So it's kind of counterproductive um, and we need to keep, keep them real slow. So the idea behind those slow runs is that we're filling the heart with blood, essentially, to expand the size of it in simple terms. And if they're going at too quick a pace, the blood's not in the heart and the chambers long enough in order to elicit that um adaptation that we're looking for so it's almost like filling up a water balloon with water the more time you do that the more time the water spends in the balloon the bigger it's going to get um, and that's why when i try and emphasize to my guys it has to be slow i try and tell them that so they know why because nine times out of ten their slow run becomes like a seven minute miles really pushing the pace and it's just counterproductive so yeah so it's all underpinned by an aerobic base um, and then as we approach fight night we want to get more specific the closer we get to the fight. So if we look at boxing, for example, the, the nature of the sport means it's more of an alactic aerobic sport. So it's bursts of alactic, which in simple terms means small sort of six-second bursts, 
with periods of recovery. That's what boxing is. So as we go towards fight night, we can really develop firstly their alactic power where they might do something like maximal uh, sled sprints for six seconds and have a minute recovery. And as we edge closer to fight night, we manipulate those interval times to work more alactic capacity. So the interval time would get longer and the rest time would get lower. So by the end of it, you might go from that six seconds on minute rest to work in something like 12 seconds on with a 20 second rest. So you're getting real specific to the sport by that point. And that's going to enable them to repeat their bouts of combinations, recover and go again for the duration of, of their competition. Um, one of my favorite things as well, just to sort of finish up on this one, would be uh, introducing stuff like cluster sets or tri-sets. They're two ways that I've found get really good results in terms of enabling someone to carry their power throughout um, competition. So, for example, with the cluster sets, they might, at the start of a block, say, do... And I, I use like a speedometer type thing, a velocity, velocity band to measure the speeds, but they might do something for three reps before the speed drops. And then we'd introduce cluster sets where they do three reps, have a 20 second rest, do three reps, 20 second rest, three reps. So over that block now, they've gone from just doing three reps to then doing nine reps in a set, for example. And we can manipulate that. You know, you can do two reps, two reps, two reps. You can do three, three, three. The idea is as you go through, you add maybe some more reps, you reduce the, um, the inter-repetition rest time. And then again, that enables them to just carry that power output over a longer duration, which is going to carry over to their sport. Um, and then the last one, as I said, was triceps, which I find I really enjoy triceps because often what we find with our guys as they head towards fight night is that if we cut out strength training, sort of maximal lifts too early, by the time they get to fight night, that starts to, to dip off in essence. Um, so I like the triceps because we can start it with a heavy lift of even just one rep or an isometric just to not bring about too much fatigue. So we might go something like... Um, a heavy um, floor press or bench press, for example, at 90% or above just for one rep. We'd then go into, say, um, like a, what I call a medium one, where we'd go, say, banded press up, something like that, and we'd do six reps. We'd then have another little breather, and then we might go like real light med ball into uh, med ball chest throws. So as you go through the triceps, you go from heavy, medium, light, but that enables you to keep your power and your speeds up because the weight's getting less your speed can in theory stay at those high levels. So they're just a couple of ways that I like to kind of implement things and, and mess around with loads and, and rest times and stuff, enable the athlete to be powerful for a longer duration. Yeah, I really like that. That's really cool. In terms of like the cluster sets, um, is there a whole sort of reason behind it that you can still lift heavy, i.e. 333, um, and not really like have a drop off in speed or intensity? Where no, like yeah. if they just have that weight and did like nine uh, reps straight, yeah, speed will definitely drop off towards the end as they approach failure. So it's almost yeah. just to keep them like a little bit fresh in between these like mini sets. That's it. Yeah, it's just that little breather. You, you know, most people probably felt it when I think research shows that after about six reps is when the power starts to drop off. Um, but you you feel it yourself again. If it feels slow, it probably is, and you, you feel that certain sort of threshold where. You just don't feel like you've got anything more to give. So just having those little rest in between their um, efforts just allows them just to recover a little bit more, replenish the energy stores that they need to do, and then go again and, and maintain that, that high level power output. 
Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, one of the things I actually loved you said that was um, all the athletes, like you tell them to go for like a slow run and they actually kill it. Like, oh, I know like the combat sport athletes I work with, like, Chris, I just hit a 510k PB. It's like, that's not a slow run. Like, <laughs> slow, the, slow the fuck down, like, chill out. Yeah, it's so um, true. Um, so when we're thinking of like heart rate zones and stuff, uh, what would you consider like low? Is it yeah, so a little bit over like a, a brisk walk? You know? Yeah, so I always say to them like, just plod, just plod. You shouldn't really be getting like out of breath. But when I, just for experience, their compliance of doing a plod, zero. Just not happening. It's a fast run. They get bored. We know what combat athletes are like. They just want to work hard every session. So it just wasn't working. So now what I tend to do, and if anyone's using like a heart rate monitoring device or anything like that, we try and keep it green zone or yellow zone, but no, no higher than that. But an, a method that I've actually found more success with, with especially combat athletes is the 180 method by, I think it was Dr. Maffetone is how you pronounce his name, but he basically does a 180 minus your age and has that as your long steady run um heart rate zone so for example if you're 30 years old you'd run at 180 minus 30 at 150 and you'd keep your heart rate there for a period of 30 to i think he says 90 minutes but i'd never really go that high i'd say 30 to 60 minutes for my guys um and why i like it is because it keeps the competitive edge that the combat athletes love um so it's a way of getting what i want out of it and also keeping them competitive and giving them the stimulation they need, but also making sure they're not going out and doing a fast run. So what I normally do um, is give them, say, a 45-minute run at that heart rate and see what distance they can get. And in theory, over the weeks, if they're getting fitter, they should be able to run further at that same heart rate. That's the idea behind it. Um, I was actually speaking to uh, Phil Derue a little while ago. Who, I do his mentorship, but he's a strength coach out in America. And he was saying he uses a similar one, but he uses like a three-week wave. So week one, he might do 30 minutes. Week two, he might do 45. Week three, he does 60. And then when they deload back to 30 minutes on week four, they should see that their 30 minutes from week one gets beaten in terms of distance. So that's a method I like in order to try, try, try to get them guys not to blow themselves out on those road runs because it's, as I say, that's just what they're used to. They've done it all their life and it's really hard for them just to plug because they feel like it's not got any point to it. Yeah, more is more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. Like buying with athletes is absolutely huge. I know yeah. that firsthand in terms of the nutrition side of things and mm. obviously working with like coaches, S&C coaches, I definitely know the, the issues with like and buying and stuff again to do specific exercises in a specific yeah. way to elicit a specific adaptation. So yeah. um, no, I, I like that you're kind of like thinking ahead and yeah. uh, working around that. That's cool. That's it. Yeah. And it's also because I always put those runs in as like a recovery. And so the other, the other negative with them then going out and, and running really fast is that that recovery afternoon does not become a recovery afternoon at all. And then they head into, say, Thursday. They've not had that recovery. And then something has to give for the rest of the week. So it's just a way that I can try and get that extra recovery in as well. But again, I think having that competitive edge in terms of the distance measurement really, really helps those guys. Yeah, for sure. It's like when I do like the nutrition periodization of like uh, combat sport athletes, like training mm. week, 
and then they did like recovery run it's like okay this is a low day it's not gonna be very calorie expensive and then they like absolutely smash it they deplete their glycogen source and they're yeah. like oh chris i'm really tired for some reason yeah. it's like well oh, this is weird yeah <laughs> and you yeah. look asking about the training it's like oh i hit a pb here hit a pb there and it's like oh just, you uh you, you gotta listen, love those guys though because just listen to your coach yeah like it's <laughs> I mean, it's great in one way that they're probably one of the only athletes who don't actually have to get them to do any more. Um, but that's also can can be their down, downfall as well. Yeah, that is very true. So um, in terms of like every sport, everybody loves a standard. Like yeah. in terms of like the key areas we kind of identified, like speed kills, like power endurance, having this big aerobic base. Could you almost like classify um, individuals into like, say, like low standard, medium standard, high standard mm. based on their scores. Um, yeah. So whether it's a case of sprinting 100 meters, sprinting 40 meters, jumping a certain height, uh, jumping a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of things that you look at in terms of your need analysis? Like, okay, you're great at this. We can almost put that in maintenance. This is where you're perhaps not so great. So let's put more emphasis and put more weight into that. Is there anything yeah. you've got uh, regarding that? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's some great research out there as well. I know the UFC Performance Institute released like a a document of all their standards. They've had like, I think about 70% of UFC athletes in for testing now out in Las Vegas. And they put together all the normative data. So it's it's unbelievable what they've put together. So now you can just go on it and you can look up, say, if you've got a a, a lightweight and they've got every single test of what the – the sort of benchmarks are for that weight class like it's unbelievable what they've done there and that's just available for everyone but um kind of a few things that i do obviously i'm not got blessed with the facilities that those guys are so we have to adapt a little bit but i like doing like a bleep test with with my guys um just to see what their their base is like um some people don't like the bleep test because it's got that change of direction element in it um but for me personally I like to keep it with that because change of direction is key for the sport anyway. So if their change of direction is bad enough that they're losing time and losing score on their VO2 max, then that's a big red flag. Um, So for me, I like to keep it in. And if they are losing time through turning too slowly, then straight away, it's like another assessment to I know that deceleration, acceleration needs to be improved and that change of direction stuff. So I use the bleep test still. Um, And in terms of a score on that, I've seen some really good scores, but I'd say, you know, if you want to be at the elite end of that, you need to be looking at trying to get between that 15, 16 uh, marks at level 15, level 16, that would be, give you a a good base to go from. Um, And actually on the um, app I use, Ross actually gave it to me. I think it was in lockdown. He started using it Um, um, on the app that gives you a VO2 max score. And it's actually not too far off of the lab testing. What I've got from my guys who have then done the beep test. Um, And that's cool. So in terms of VO2 max, we probably want to be as an elite level, probably in the, in the sixties, but if we can get towards mid sixties, then that's a really, really good score. Um, Having said that kind of on, on like a side note, it's important to just note that good fitness scores, doesn't really necessarily 100% equate to being well-conditioned. You know, these are just baseline tests. Their VO2 max is a fitness indicator, and of course you want it to be high, but just because you've got a good fitness indicator does not mean that you're going to go and and fight 12 rounds and and be good at that. Conditioning and fitness are two slightly different things. Um, And that's why you see, you know, a lot of guys who can get great scores, 
but on fight night they gas out and they you know and it, it's getting that transference I guess is where well why I get paid really is to try and get them from the good fitness scores and transferring that into a good conditioning in, in the ring um, and then in terms of your jumps and stuff like that as I said I use a something called a push band which it does a whole host of things in terms of bar speed and stuff like that. It's really cool, but it does a lot of jump tests as well. But one of my favorite ones that I like to use is um, something called the eccentric utilization ratio. So all that means in simple terms is I like to keep things nice and simple is basically how good you are at using a downward movement to, to jump higher in, in essence. So as part of that test, what we do is we take a squat jump where they go down hold the bottom of a squat, take away all the downward momentum and jump up as high as they, as they can. We then do a counter movement jump. So where they stand up, they dip and drive as you most commonly would if you're trying to jump high. What we should see is that the counter movement jump is higher than the squat jump. Um, sometimes actually weirdly enough, we don't see that, um, but that's what we should see. Um, and then what we do, we take the counter movement jump and we divide it by the squat jump and that gives us a number which is our eccentric utilization ratio. And what we want to see is that have a, a number of between maybe around 1.2 to 1.3. That would be a good ratio. Any higher than that means that they're really good at doing a counter movement jump, but they're not good at a squat jump in terms of producing that force themselves. So from a programming standpoint, if you're getting a ratio above sort of 1.4, 1.5, probably needs, means that they just need to get stronger. Vice versa, if the numbers 1.0 or below get into sort of 0 0.8, that means that they're quite strong in terms of the squat jump, but the counter movement jump is not as high as it should be. So they're losing energy, um, dipping and driving. So we can work on a bit more, you know, um, joint integrity and, and tendon stiffness and reactive strength and all that sort of stuff with our apply uh, metrics in terms of programming. So that's quite a good test that I like to do. Um, and it also there and then within those two jumps shows me whether someone's a strong athlete or an explosive athlete. And it kind of enables me to see where we need to fill the blanks in terms of moving forward. No, that's really, that's, that's very cool. I think that's very um, valuable for anybody listening yeah. with regards to like standards, like, okay, is this something I could do myself? Okay. Mm -hmm. And how can I progress it based on the results I've had and everything? So that's really cool. Yeah, do you do any, um, Sorry, do you do Sorry, no, I, was, I was just going to say, if they've not got a device or anything, they could just grab a bit of chalk and just jump up and, and do the markers on, on a wall and, and measure the, the distance that way. Uh, you don't need to have all that sort of technology or anything like that. No, that's, that's no, brilliant. Yeah. Adapt and overcome. Very cool. <laughs> do you do any kind of testing for like uh, agility or coordination or reaction time or anything like that? You know, I've been the coordination one, reaction time one. I've really been, I want to get some kind of pods or, or like speed markers and stuff, because that's something I'm really interested in, because obviously it's a real key element of, of the sport. Um, I do have an app on my phone, which is like a number grid, which when they're under fatigue, sometimes doing their conditioning in the rest times, I'll get them to try and fulfill the number grid in essence. So they're working that mental side, their reactions and stuff like that, alongside being fatigued. Um, again, you can do things like um, a, a T-test, where they sprint out five meters, side shuffle, side shuffle, and turn back. There's a few. Um, I don't do them all the time, to be honest. I'd, I'd normally go more specific in that sort of stuff if I'm seeing an issue somewhere down the line. But as I said, from doing the bleep test, you can see as it gets to those higher levels, whether someone's agility and change of direction needs work. And, and again, just watching them spar. You, you, you'll find out pretty quickly by 
watching them spar, how their sort of lateral movement is, how their change of direction and their agility is. And it, they know themselves as well. And, and, and again, having that open conversation with the athlete and the trainer, they'll all, before you've even done any testing, you'll know that actually that's something that we need to work on just because they'll tell, you know, the, the, the trainers that I've worked with personally as well, they're, they're like great to get on with and great to work with. They tell me before I've done any testing exactly what they're, they know their fighter better than anyone. So it normally becomes a case that my testing uh, battery is just reaffirming what, what uh, the trainers already told me. No, that's super. That that's really cool. Mm. No, nice, nice. So I guess um, from like my experience working with combat sport athletes, there's a lot of sort of um, old habits and perhaps not the most informed practice and stuff with regards to, like the old school mentality. This is yeah. how we did it before, all that kind of stuff. So what do you say like the most common issues uh, you see in terms of a combat sport athlete's like physical development? Is mm. it kind of some like red flags and they're just like why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? <clears throat> yeah, it would be number one by far the most sort of common mistake or whatever you want to call it is that they do too much as we've almost kind of touched on a little bit that their week schedule. So one of the first things I'll get them to do is, is fill out a week schedule for me and just use a traffic light system. So they'll write down what sessions they do each day and just put red, orange or green. And I can almost guarantee, in fact, I don't think I've ever had it where it's not, 90% red sessions and then a couple of orange thrown in with zero greens. That's probably the most common. I've maybe had one or two before where there's a couple of greens put in. Uh, they tend to be the older athletes as well who realize that they can't push as hard anymore. Um, but that would, yeah, by far and away, that would be the most common mistake in, that I see is that they're just doing too much too often. Um, so every session is hard, uh, every day is hard and they're not allowing themselves to recover uh, that would be number one number two would be that they're very sort of anterior dominant everything they do by nature is in um, that pushing movement so the posterior chain in terms of upper back uh, glutes and hamstrings tend to be quite underdeveloped that leads to various issues but even because they're running a lot and then they've got that mixed with having underdeveloped glutes weak hamstrings um, a lack of, say, like ankle mobility, put those two things together and, and you've got a sort of like a recipe for an injury of some kind. So sort of like knee injuries or, or lower back injuries where that tends to take the strain. That would be sort of like the two things I'd say where um, most commonly you can almost guarantee if you, you get a fighter in for the first time, both those things are, are, are going to come up. Yeah, brilliant. So I really like the um, when you sort of get them to fill in their diary and their mm. schedule in terms of what percentage they have. Um, what would you recommend is a good percentage on average? I know some people will probably be able to tolerate higher loads and stuff. Yeah. Um, but what would you say? Like, obviously, we don't 90, 95% fit being red. So what yeah. would you say is a good um, starting point for people? Yes. Yeah. So as you said, yeah, it's going to be athlete dependent. People can tolerate different loads and stuff like that. But But generally speaking, I like to see two really hard days in the week. Um, so that might look something like a day where they maybe got three sessions where one might be S and C one might be like a run and one might be a boxing session. So they might have two of those, two of those days in a week. Ideally we want those away from each other as well. We don't want them back to back. Um, and then if we can, we'd have like a light day in between. So it might be like on a light day, they might do a technical boxing session and then do just like mobility or a, a slow run, slow run. That's why it's key to have the slow <laughs> run um, or something like that. And then they might have a couple of medium days as well. 
and then a rest day as well. So it would look something like that. Two hard days, a couple of medium days, a lighter day and a rest day as well. Be, but something like that. But as I said, it's just important that we just don't have those heavy days too often. Three heavy days maximum and just making sure they're not put next to each other. Yeah, for sure. 100% agree with that. Do you do any other sort of screening outside of the training itself in terms of life, life stresses, um, nutrition quality, sleep quality, all that kind of stuff and see how that, what's that kind of compounds that uh, yeah. traffic light system as well? 100%. As, you know, it's, and I, I, what I'm a big fan of is getting them to journal um, because they'll often come in and say, you know what, I feel shattered today. Um, if they're journaling, we can look back and see like, right, okay, cool. This is the fourth Wednesday in a row when you've been tired. Why is that? And then when we look back through, okay, cool. Tuesday's your really heavy day. So now what we, can we do? Knowing that you're always tired on Wednesday, Tuesday's a really heavy day. What can we start implementing now to counteract that? All right, cool. We can make Wednesday a bit of a lower intensity day. That can be your active recovery day. You can have your nutrition plan to have Tuesday as a little bit higher calorie day, a little bit higher carb day, you know, there's loads of stuff we can do around that. One of the things I do is I have something called like a West analysis. Um, and it's called West analysis because the word in stands for stuff. It's actually, so it's water, eating, stress, sleep and training week. Um, so I'll do an analysis around that. Um, and just to see what they're doing, training loads, are they sleeping well? Are they eating well? What's the hydration levels like? Um, and nine times out of 10, again, if they're ha having certain days where they are tired, it's normally a combination of heavy training, poor nutrition, poor recovery. Um, and so, yeah, I'd kind of back up as much as we can. Things we're seeing, things we know, like we know now I don't have to do those things. I'll know pretty much it, it's a given, but it's good just to back up just to make sure that, that we're, we're fixing the right things. Yeah, for sure. I think from like a, the athlete's perspective as well, it's just like a nice educational um, point as well. Nice teaching point. Yeah. Just say like, right, this is what you're doing. This is how you feel. This is what you've done. Okay. These are your kind of like key performance indicators regards like freshness, fatigue, everything. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's do something about it. Because once they're aware of it, then, you know, they have a say in how they can make the intervention. And yeah. ultimately they're going to buy into it more and stick it to it more well, as that well. Yeah. And that's it. That's exactly what you say. You know, you can tell these guys whatever you want, but especially as you start working with the more elite guys, like why should they listen to me? They've been at that elite level doing what they've done. It works. Um, and so I kind of think it becomes a case of almost giving them the suggestion, but it's their idea to do it. Um, and it's kind of just reiterating the point to them. Like, and I've had this conversation a few times with some, some of the guys is that, you know, yes, it has worked before doing it that, but you're, you've got to where you were um, in spite of, of that stuff rather than because of it. So if you got there doing it that way, I can guarantee you're going to get an extra 20 to 30% out of your performance doing it this way. And, um, you know, and sometimes they'll, they'll come in after a couple of weeks of, of doing it and they think you're some sort of like magician. They'll come in on like, say, to say using that the same example, Tuesday, heavy day, Wednesday, active recovery. On Thursday, when you see them, they come in, they're like, feel so good got so much energy uh, i trained really well this morning uh got a really good time on my run and like, i feel really good i'm not tired i slept well and it's just like yeah that's yeah. kind of the whole idea behind it but as you say it's getting that buy-in you know you can't just tell them oh you're doing it wrong you should do this because who really wants yeah. to be told that they're wrong no one um so it's kind of those small one percenters not changing too much too soon just being like right okay can you instead of going and doing a long heavy run can you just limit it to half an hour at least 
And that might be a starting point that gets that little 1%, nice and easy to do, um, and just gets the ball rolling. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen a difference in buying with the different levels you work at? Mm. So I'd say mixtures really you know mixtures definitely i've never really had any issues in terms of buying i guess i'm quite lucky in terms of that um but i'm very i guess as, as a coach i'm very open to suggestions and people calling me out in, in essence you know i don't want to coach people and tell them to do something and they just go and do it and they don't question why or why we're not doing something else i always encourage my guys to call me out and if they've got any opposing um, thoughts to kind of say, Reese, but why, why would I do that? I've been doing this and it works fine. Or why are we not doing this? And, and, you know, I've had a few of the guys take me up on that offer and calling me out, but it's, it's part of the process. Um, but on the whole, the amateurs tend to be younger. So they tend to get the buying a little bit easier because they've never done anything before. Um, they've not had a career where they can look back and say, yeah, but it worked. It got me to here doing it this way. So they tend to be more of a, an open canvas that you can sort of mold the way you want. As you go up the level, obviously there's going to naturally be challenges. You know, if I was at an elite level and some random person came and told me to change my chaining re regime, I'd probably look at them and be like, mm, I'm not sure, man. I'm probably not going to do it. Um, so it's completely understandable, but it's having that relationship, which is why having a good relationship with all your athletes is key. It's not just in terms of athlete coach relationship, but actually having a relationship in terms of being friends um, and, and having that understanding, which I made that mistake plenty of times previously where I didn't have that relationship and it's a lot harder to get that by. And whereas now I can honestly say my fighters that I work with, they're all friends and I genuinely want the best for them and they will listen to me and I'll listen to them and we'll have the discussions. Of course, it's not always seamless. We'll have, you know, we'll have discussions about why we're doing certain things and why we're not. And we have to make compromises, but that's what relationships are. It's having a set opinion, someone else having another opinion. But when you're in a relationship of any kind, you have to make compromises, meet in the middle and try and come to a resolution. And I found now I've got that side of it nailed. It becomes a lot easier to get that by. Nice. Perfect. So I guess like if there's any aspiring coach who listen to this, mm. that is like what you need to be doing when it comes yeah, to sort of building sure. buying and building relationships and rapport with your, yeah. with your athletes because absolutely and I'm sure you've been there as well. Like when you're younger, when we first say got qualified and you know, you come out of that that first qualification and you're like, Oh, I'm the shit, I know everything. Don't ever need to study anymore. I've got my qualification, I'm 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 the man, I know everything. And maybe sometimes that can come you, you push it on people a little bit too much and you realise actually very quickly, and I'm sure you're exactly the same, that the the more you you, you learn you find out the less you actually know. Um, and I think that's well, it's just part of, of the process. So definitely for sort of like younger coaches coming up, having that sort of awareness that actually you, you don't know everything. In fact, we, we don't know anything at all um, compared to what's out there to learn. So yeah, definitely. For sure. It's almost like when, as soon as you finished um, sort of like your driving lessons, do your driving test, and then it's like, right, I'm Lewis Hamilton. I can take yeah. on the road. I know what yeah. I'm doing. And it's like, you have no idea what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. So I know I made exactly. a huge amount of mistakes when I first started out working with mm. professional athletes um, and was just trying to like overly impress them by how academic I was. And it's like, we do not give a shit about this. Who are you? Yeah. Why should we listen to? And, you know, once you kind of strip all that back and, yeah. you know, just actually get to know them, get them to like and trust you, then you can yeah. sort of build in things in. That's it, mate. Like you hit the nail on the head. Like you, 
you almost think like you've proven something by, as I say, being academic and stuff like that. But I look back now and I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you Even stuff like Instagram, when I used to do some of my Instagram posts and I used to write it like just to throw big words in for the sake of it. And I'm like, great. I, I think it sounds really good, but matey who's reading it has absolutely zero idea what I'm on about. <laughs> so and I look back at some of them now and I'm like, why are you writing like that? It's not an essay. Just keep it to Instagram. <laughs> Photosynthesis. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure, like 100%. Um, so, one of the things you mentioned there as well um, before we went on to the coaching uh, topic uh, was like the perhaps uh, the sort of like anterior dominance athletes will have, compressible athletes will have, and that kind of just segues, segues us nicely onto like the injury prevention mm. or minimizing risk of injury. Yeah. Um, so, is there anything in particular you do through your practice with your fighters? Uh, to make sure that they are healthy because as yeah. we know the greatest ability of an athlete is availability and That's... if they can't turn up their sessions or actually fight and make money then what's the point yes that's absolutely it and that's I've done a post about this, I think it was last week, basically saying exactly what you said and it's so true like you can be the best fighter in the world, but if you can't show it who who cares you, you know you're only as good as what you can show and if you're always injured then it's pointless so sort of priority number one of any strength conditioning program or any camp is to keep them healthy enough that they can go and do all their sports sessions to the best of their ability for the duration of camp. If, if sort of numbers aside, lifting aside, runs aside, if I've got an athlete that has been able to do all their pad work, all their sparring, all their bag work to the best of their ability for the whole duration, 10 week, 12 week, whatever it is, then that's a successful camp. That's a successful program. And then once we've done that, then it's can we develop their strength and, and all those qualities. Um, we've mentioned a few of them, to be honest, already in terms of what we do to keep them injury-free, but just monitoring the training loads, making sure they've got a mixture of hard and, and recovery sessions, making sure sessions aren't always 90 minutes and, and nine out of 10 effort, making sure there are some that are sort of half an hour at five out of 10 effort and stuff like that. So that's the foundation of it. And then it's just, as we mentioned, they're very anterior dominant which leads to, say, let's say around the chest, for example, because they're always in that rounded shoulders, um, chin tucked in, doing hundreds and thousands of punches a week. They end up with internally rotated shoulders, which obviously posterior, um, posture-wise and upper back, all that sort of stuff just doesn't get work. So as much as we can, we get in as much pulling as possible, to be honest. So, and when I'm looking at my programs, I'd say 70% of the exercises are probably posterior dominant. So a lot of pulling, a lot of sort of accessory work around the shoulders. So doing like uh, prone pulls and um, swimmers and mobility work around the shoulders and the upper back. Um, and then working, really, really working in terms of strength, the hamstrings, the glutes, um, all that sort of stuff. And the, the, the great thing is in terms of, work in the posterior chain it counteracts what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis anyway but because they're underdeveloped and they're not as strong as say their, their quads it means that we can get the same strength stimulus but using a much lo lower load which when you're looking at not fatiguing them too much and you're looking to get them strong but minimize that fatigue and central nervous fatigue and all that sort of stuff that's a massive win if we can get them doing heavy um, exercises on the posterior chain that's getting a max effort stimulus but the loads half as what they do in an anterior dominant exercise, 
that's a massive, massive win. So in terms of that, yeah, just working that posterior chain a lot, a lot of banded, higher repetition work on, on the shoulders and upper back um, and just making sure as much as we can, we're counteracting their boxing work um, to a certain extent anyway, because obviously that rounded shoulders thing is, is the human body adapting to its environment. So there's a, there's a reason why they're getting rounded shoulders and it's going to be an advantage for their boxing. So you want to counteract it but we don't want it to be perfect because it is having that a little bit of it is going to actually benefit them in, in their sport. No, that, that's cool. That, that's brilliant. Um, almost like the training program of an online coach sat in a desk all day and uh, round his shoulders. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny. Like I say that to all the people all the time. It's boxers and general population have the same issues going on just in terms, you know, we're driving on our phones, reading, everything's in that same uh, positions so actually a lot of the stuff that the boxers do to counteract everyday life general population are, are definitely going to have uh, the same sort of exercises yeah true true so when we look at say um the yearly periodization of a mm. fighter um yeah. as we know there's going to be different parts of the year so mm. is there anything in particular you like to kind of periodize so we kind of highlighted the key characteristics the key physical mm. characteristics of a fighter is there any period of time that you would like to perhaps mm. put more prior to more emphasis on it yeah for sure and I think this goes back to what we we're saying about the whole coaching being young and thinking you know it all because when I first started doing it I was a I was a planner I was a annual plan we're going to put everything here we've got it all planned we know what we're doing and you find out especially in combat sports very quickly that nothing goes to plan uh, that fights pop up injuries pop up and so I was spending hour hour and a half planning their their camps and it was pointless because we're never going to follow it anyway. I don't think I've ever followed a plan as I planned it out. I don't think it's ever gone 100% well. So now it's a case of getting the big blocks in and I have a timeline and know that, for example, right, we've not hit max strength for a while. We're probably going to need to get a stimulus of some kind on this month. Um, we've not hit X, Y, and Z over a little while. We're going to need to pencil in when we do that. Um, the nature of combat sports now, and especially given COVID as well, it means that it's just such an unknown. We don't know when people are fighting. We don't know when shows are going to start up, especially for the lower level guys. So it's doing what we can. But generally speaking, these guys now, camps aren't really a thing. They, they tend to train all year round. Um, and I think that's just now becoming the norm. It used to be very much like if you think back to Ricky Hatton and stuff, it was 12 weeks, you go all in, you take two months off undo all your hard work and then you come back from zero again and that's just what happened but now it's very much have a week maybe two weeks off and then you're back in um so the most important thing comes just managing the intensities so yes they can be back in the gym or back to boxing but just making sure that it's, they're working more technical in their skill sessions um and when we come back in they're working not as long duration uh lower intensity so they're having that recovery period anyway um, obviously out of camp, what we really want to work on is getting all our base built. So we're doing that real aerobic base, uh, strength, endurance, making sure that mobility is good. Movement patterns are good, that the joints, um, tendons and all that sort of stuff are all prepared. So when they go into that 10 week block of training, i.e. camp, that their body can tolerate the high intensities of training. Um, I think everyone always thinks, and I think... I guess I could be assuming it's wrong, but the general uh, consensus is that when you go into that 10-week camp, 
that's your hard work. That's where you go all in. But actually what I like to say is outside of camp, your S&C takes priority. As soon as you go into that 10-week, eight-week period, your sport takes priority and we, we cut back. So all our hard work, all our pushing our boundaries is done further away from the fight. When we get in, there's too much going on to push hard on SSC as well. It's just going to overload them too much. So we get our hard work done. And then when we get into that last eight-week period, it's pretty much sparring, bag work, pad work that takes priority. And we work and adjust in and amongst that. Um, and as I said, if you can get a solid strength base, a, short, a solid aerobic base built on that out-of-camp period, then that's going to set you up nicely for the camp itself and then moving forward for the rest of the year. Yeah, nice. I guess it's the case then of like when you're out of, shall we say, quote-unquote camp, mm. there's just like this uh, development or development of um, the physical quality that we talked yeah. about. And then when you're in camp, it's just like, right, let's put this on maintenance and just make sure they're healthy. Yeah, exactly. That. That's literally... Yeah, that is all we want. We want them to be in a position that when they go into that hard eight weeks, that they can tolerate it without getting injured, without overtraining, um, and without having to sacrifice performance, essentially. Why do you think this has changed then? Like you referenced like the Ricky Hatton days when they had mm -hmm. like sort of eight-week camp followed by two months off. Yeah. Why has this changed and developed over the last couple of decades? What do you think has gone on there? I think probably a few things, probably culturally. Uh, a lot more younger guys now. It's like a new generation of fighters who have grown up with it. The kind of sparring and going for runs is sort of slowly starting to filter out and strength conditioning is becoming more of a, a not even important, but more of a expected, I guess, uh, part of, of a fighter's regime. In MMA, due to it being a younger sport, it's a lot more um, accepted, I guess you could say in a, a fighter's program. Um, with boxing, as you say, it's always been the long runs, the, the hundreds of sit-ups and all that sort of stuff. But I think there's been some kind of, of cultural change where um, now there's like a shift. And I think the rise of social media, there's a lot of the guys now that are seeing people like Anthony Joshua and all these people lifting weights and, and being explosive and doing all this stuff. So it's just like, well, if, if it's good enough for AJ, then I should probably get on it as well. Um, and I think just maybe it's a very competitive sport now fighting. Um, and so a lot of fighters now are, are realizing that they need to give themselves every chance to um, get where they want to be essentially. You know, um, I've always said strength conditioning, like is an important part. Someone can get to where they want to be without it, no doubt. But if two fighters meet who are a similar talent, the one who's got the better SNC program is going to win that fight. So I think there's definitely been a shift where it's gone from, yeah, it looks fancy, but what's it actually doing to people now are actually seeing the importance of it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think we've kind of seen this in pretty much every sport. And yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely in the agreement there. Mm. So when we say um, do like doing a needs analysis for a fighter, so say a new fighter walks to the door and you have to work with him or her for the course of a camp. Obviously, you want to work with them for a whole year to make sure we get through the development side of things. Yeah. But if you only had to go in and work with them for, yeah, through like say 10 to 12 weeks for a camp, what is like your needs analysis? Like when you look at them, like what do you think? What tests do you do? Yeah. We kind of touched on them. Yeah. um in isolation but kind of bringing it all together what, yeah, but, what's the kind of step-by-step -step process you look at 
Yeah, so I'd initially send them that West analysis to look at the lifestyle factors, sleep, stress, training loads and all that sort of stuff, get them to do their training week as we spoke about. Um, and then once they're in the gym, it's just seeing how they move first and foremost. So I used to do like a, a movement screen where I'd get them, you know, uh, doing squats and knees against wall and all that sort of stuff. But I was kind of just doing it for doing its sake. Um, again, because I thought I had to, whereas now it's something as, si as simple as getting them to go for a dynamic warm up. So within that warm up, I'll get them doing squats and lunges and, and single leg hops. And straight away, you can see what their mobility is like, what their movements like, whether they're explosive, what their stability is like, whether they got imbalances from left to right, all within the first 15 minutes of that dynamic warm up. Um, and then we'd go into more sort of, I guess, like performance-based tests. So we'd look at, as we've already spoke about, the jump testing. We'd do some med ball throws. Um, we would look at their strength levels. So we'd do maybe like a free RM test on, on like floor press or a trap bar and, and stuff like that. Um, and we'd look at their conditioning via bleep test or a Kuba test. Or if we have access to facilities, we'd do a VO2 max test and, and that sort of stuff to get those baseline numbers. And then you basically take all that data and it's a case of saying like, right, this is where we are. Where do we need to get and how long do we have and reverse engineering that backwards. Um, but it's very common now that you are just going to get people drop in for an eight to 10 week camp. And I think the mistake that I've made before um, is that you try and change too much in that eight to 10 weeks. Whereas actually now, if I got someone in that was a case that they're only going to be here for eight weeks, it's like, right, let's just work on one, maybe two things, you know? Um, and I like to kind of use almost like a, your strengths against your opponent's strengths in terms of deciding what we're going to prioritize in camp. So again, it goes down to get a game plan, talking to a trainer, what are you going to try and implement and how do we maximize that from a physical standpoint but also looking at it at some point, especially at the higher level, is the, the, the fight's going to sway. And at some point, the opponent's going to be implementing his style of fight on you. So when that happens, you know, we're not going to have a big enough ego to say, no, we're going to dominate the whole fight. Let's look at it. So when that inevitably happens, what's their strength and what's your weakness and how do you bring those weaknesses up a little bit to try and counteract their strengths when we need to? Yeah, that's a really cool way to look at it. And that is very much sport specific. That's really cool. It is, it yeah. In the case of I'm going into camp, I'm going to do CrossFit or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and you see it, you see it a lot, um, especially like with, with CrossFit thing. And I, I get it. I do understand why people do do it, but I guess it, it comes down to just trying to educate fighters a little bit more uh, of why that isn't deemed necessary um, or or um, not the best way to get to your desired outcome. But as I said, it is slowly starting to shift and people are starting to see the difference. But, you know, it, it, I think it takes for the specific athlete to feel the, the benefits of having a solid 10-week program done right before they get that buy-in. It's just trying to get them into that stage where they're ready and open before um, we get to prove that, I guess. Yeah, very true, very true. So... Yeah, this was an absolutely fantastic um, podcast episode. I, I myself got like pages of notes here. Um, that <laughs> I made. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been great for me. Um, so final question is uh, that I like to ask uh, everybody. So for a combat sport athlete to go from mm. average to elite, what are three key things for them to focus on from a strength and conditioning perspective? 
if you had to strip everything away, just give them three points, off you go. I like that question. It's a hard one as well. It's, it's like trying to choose the three biggest priorities, but it's tough because I know as soon as I put this down, I'll be like, oh, why did I not say that? But I'll just go with sort of what's in my head. So I would say do less is number one. Doing less, I'd have to say, is number one. So as we spoke about throughout, training loads and recovery, making sure they are optimized to enable you to train for the duration of camp to the best of your ability and recover well because you know it's all good and well training 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 but if you're not recovering you're not going to adapt to that training so our adaptation is only as good as our recovery so i'd make sure that would be number one number two would have to be having that solid base aerobic base strength endurance and good and and just having that set so when you go into that 10-week camp you can really really focus on your sport you know, that's where you want to be focusing on game plan uh, um, and built. And you have to try and do that within the 10-week camp. It's just not a good good place to be. It's going to push you. And then one, I would probably say, and this is kind of a little bit away from being physical. I would say work on their, their mental side of their game as well. You know, we, we always hear the sayings that, you know, uh, fighting's 90% mental and all that sort of stuff, but who actually trains their mental side. Um, and you see it a lot. I mean, all fighters who have camps are in good shape. They're, they're, they're trained hard, they're fit. But then why do we see on fight night, a lot of fighters gas out? They're not unfit. I know for a fact they're not. And I know for a fact they've all trained. So the only reason can be if they can spar 10 rounds and be all right, and on fight night they're doing six rounds and getting absolutely gassed, it has to be a mental thing. It has to be. Um, and so I'd work on the mental side of it. I'd work on stuff like visualization, um, like confidence, um, and all those sort of stuff, just to make sure that mentally you're allowing yourself to let your physical preparation shine on fight night. Because you, you can be as fit and as strong as you want. If the mental side's not right, you, you, you're not going to do what you need to do. No, love them. They're very, very cool. Um, you broke up a little bit on like the, the second point there. But just to recap, it's basically number one, do less. More is yeah. not more. Number two, build that solid aerobic base. Yeah. And then three, let's get the mental game on point as well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's the top three. As I said, after this, I'll probably be like, oh, I should have yeah. said that actually. But yeah, we'll stick with those. Yeah, no, no, that's cool. That that's brilliant. I get these questions asked all the time, but the nutrition side of things, like one of the yeah, things yeah, people like do to optimize nutrition is like, oh, there's so many things. Like, <laughs> these yeah. are just three. Um, but no, that really, <laughs> that's a really good answer. I love that. So, um, Reese, absolutely uh, amazing uh, episode. That, like I said, I've learned loads, and I really appreciate appreciate your time coming on tonight. Yeah, no problem. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Awesome, brilliant. So um, where can people uh, find you? Uh, do you have anything coming up in the pipelines that they need to know about? Uh, what's uh, happening over the next couple of months for you? Yeah, so you can find me primarily on Instagram at elite.step. So I'm elite step on anything. I think if you search on all social medias, it will come up in some way, shape or form. But Instagram is my main, main one I use. Um, exciting actually over the, the, the last few months with lockdown and stuff, I used it to really get my marketing up. So I've had like a, a rebrand, um, done. So new website, new logos and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to be launched on September the 21st. It's going to be like a big, 
rebrand launch. And as part of that, the Monday following, so Monday the 28th, I'm going to be releasing an eight-week uh, program called Unleash, which is basically an eight-week general preparation phase, as we spoke about actually a lot through the podcast. It wasn't a sales pitch, I promise. It's actually genuine <laughs> thoughts. Um, but as I've mentioned a lot through the podcast, having that aerobic base and that solid foundation built is so key to maximizing your performance. So this Unleash program will be aimed at uh, developing your your base, building your aerobic base, building your strength endurance, making sure joints and, and, and mobility and all that sort of stuff's up to where it needs to be. It's two strength sessions a week, two conditioning sessions, eight weeks. Um, yeah, so that'll be launching on uh, September the 28th. Very cool, very cool. The average to elite step, it'd be cool. <laughs> That's it, yeah. And what I'll do, Chris, as well, for, for anyone who's... Um, put up with me speaking for this long that they deserve a little bit of a treat so uh for any one of your listeners who um is listening is interested in that program they can use the discount code chrislow 20 and get 20 percent off of that when it launches outstanding very cool thank you i'm sure that'll no, be down a treat so like i said reese absolute pleasure coming on today um it's been outstanding and i uh, have to get you on for a follow-up episode in uh the not so distant future yeah no for sure chris always a pleasure mate there uh, keep up the hard work Thank you very much. Right, guys, until next time, goodbye.